the Bad Radical Radio, an interview series podcast about student of color activists, change makers, and thinkers within NYU and New York at large. I'm your host, Natalie Doggett. Welcome to the first episode of Bad Radical Radio. If you just thought out the title of this podcast, I thought I'd take a moment to explain what it means and how it came to be. Each of the words bad and radical tend to hold negative connotations in the public imagination. I use bad in its inverse meaning, so not bad meaning bad, but bad meaning good. It's the same idea with radicalism. Most view radicalism as a fearful idea when in fact it is a fruitful one. One which calls for fundamental change to societal structure for the betterment of humanity. Also, the name just gives me Janelle Monet, like Haley 47 vibe. I want to now introduce Bad Radical's first guest and my good friend, Brian Ruiz. Brian is a sophomore at Gallatin with a concentration focusing on how the prison industrial complex affects marginalized communities and groups of color in New York City. He aims to make use of community organizing, restorative justice, and the arts to rebuild communities and dismantle oppressive systems through his involvement in American Scholars and ACOP. Stay tuned for our engaging conversation on local politics, clout organizers, and performative activism. So, Brian, I was thinking the other day about how we both went to see Dr. Angela Davis at the same speaking event in both our first and second year at NYU. So I'm curious to know, what are one or two of the most important things you've learned from her work as an activist? Well, first of all, Natalie, I'd like to thank you for inviting me as your first uh, guest in this podcast. When it comes to Angel Davis, the times that I saw her were, the first time was the Spirit of Justice Conference at Columbia, which was in 2017. That was with Michelle um, Alexander. And the second time was last year with uh, when she came to NYU as first curveball. But uh, the first thing is, was that uh, the electoral ground is not the appropriate space for radical uh, movement. While voting is an important civic duty, uh, it does not ultimately mean that systems will be radically transformed. Uh, radical movement is the idea of creating a revolution that organizes to create new systems through, dis- through the dismantlement of, pre- of previous oppressive systems in order to liberate those that have been oppressed. So in other, so in other words, you're, it's a deformation of systems to become, that becomes a creation of new ones that will set us free. Um, through radical movement, you're able to look at the root causes, such as white supremacy, patriarchy, anti-blackness, capitalism, etc., and through radical movement, it takes the form of community building, self-love, education, critical consciousness, uh, producing our own resources and goods, healing and storytelling. So in every single election, you see a constant like hatred between candidates or between voters or whatever. You also see people shaming others for not voting when in reality, candidates can be uh, um, underwhelming, uh, not reflective of what the people want and have failed them before. You also see like a lack of critical thinking, uh, um, some forms of like rewriting history and some elite like tendencies too. So that's where I don't feel like the electoral grounds is like the appropriate place for radical movement at all. The second one that really caught my eye, what Angela Davis said, was that we should use arts as a way to explore our imagination. So to me, art allows victims of oppressions to heal to Experience and imagination that uncovers and refreshes their traumas as a means of healing, uh, forgiving, mourning, celebrating, and honoring the events of the past through storytelling. In addition, like arts represents not only the individual stories 
not only the individual story, but the stories of others as a collective group. Um, so, like, the story of a group can be interpreted in, like, distinct ways, but these interpretations allow for societies to come together and interpret the piece of art. Through these interpretations, you see that the creator's task is to allow for the viewers to take their interpretations as a means of creating emotion that will spark new ways for us to think about ways of healing from trauma, preserving memory, uh, rebuilding our communities and groups, uh, being inspired to support or create artwork. So ultimately, like, art is like an abstract form of liberation that gives us freedom from our struggles. I found out about the New York City grassroots organization Radical Love Consciousness through your Instagram account. That said, do you feel that social media has brought more members out on the front line to be involved in local grassroots organizations? Oh, God. <laughs> um, social media has done, to me, more harm than good in my view. That's just my opinion. But, like, I guess some of the benefits for grassroots on social media is that you can advertise events, you can display your artwork, and you can uh, show your Venmo or Cash App because organizers are not funded. Uh, this is our work. This is like truly like gra that's what grassroots that's what grassroots grassroots organizing is. Like you do it on the ground by yourself or with your community. Um, but even before like social media came to play, or organizers were like already like doing outreaching, uh, talking to their neighbors, building community, posting flyers and uh, posters in their in their streets. So you know, social media like yeah, it's good for like. Some of, like, the, uh, you know, minor -ish stuff that we deal with as organizers. But when it comes to being the backbone, I'm like, no, like, we've always, like, been organizing on the ground with our community. So to me, like, the bad side about organizing on social media is uh, monetization and performative activism. So you'll see, like, politicians uh, follow certain grassroots pages um, just because they want to see what they're doing or... It's just to steal ideas to make themselves look radical. Um, trust me, like, if you go on your favorite politician's page, they will follow some famous grassroots or grassroots activists that are doing the work. And, you know, check out those grassroots activists and just check out what the politician is saying. And it looks like what the politician is doing is just a cheaper version of it. And when I mean my, uh, what the, like, monetization, um, you see, like, in this... In like you know Instagram, uh, Facebook, Twitter, whatever, uh, you know the government does monitor us. I mean that's just a fact, and they do look at who's posting what and what information is getting out there. So now, when it comes to performative activism, um, to me, it's the idea is when people aren't really actively protesting something, but something, but like simply like putting on a performance of activism to seem cool and relevant. Um, but in reality, they're not truly understanding or changing anything at all. So an example you'll see is um, people on Instagram will, you know, they'll go to a march or a rally, for, for example, March for Our Lives, and they'll see that as a point of, hey, let me take an Instagram pic to look cool. Uh, let me go to the march, you know, for Donald Trump or no, for mar March for, for, march for uh, Women, right? Yeah, and let me just wear my pink pussy hat and... Let me, you know, make a poster with a quote from some white woman critiquing white supremacy when, you know, in reality, um, <laughs> it's always women of color doing this work. Um, and let me just post a hashtag, fuck Trump, you know, hashtag votes, hashtag Black Lives Matter. 
and post on social media just to seem cool and, and feel like I'm doing something. I'm like, no, like that shows the like that 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 is performative activism at its like finest. Like that's what you see out there, and you just see these people that want to be something and really think that they're being conscious about what they're doing and what they're what's happening in this world. But in reality, they're they're not. They're just playing by the motions. They're not really critically thinking about what does the world look like. Uh, what spaces and boundaries am I overstepping if I'm doing like these type of things? Um, it just goes to show certain individuals, and you know that's what I always say. Like it's okay if like you don't know anything. That's that's fine. Like just you know, like I'll, I'll hit you up with resources. Fine, I don't mind. But you know, just try to be critically aware and like conscious about the individuals that you interact with, because you know, at the end of the day, like these are people who. There are people who are dying from these oppressive systems, like day day in and day out. And organizers, they just deal with it constantly. You know, they're they're pressed themselves by just living under this you know capitalist patriarchal system that we're in. So always be conscious of uh, others that are like in conditions, and what you can try to do to like, to help them out too. Remember in our American Dream class, shout out Professor Dacosta. Uh, Shout out to her. I love her. She's like my mom. (laughs) (laughs) You spoke passionately about gentrification. So do you see any connection between gentrification, specifically now in the Bronx and in Queens, and the prison industrial complex? Sure, yeah. Gentrification and the prison industrial complex are tied. Um, And that's through broken windows policing. Um, In the case of, like, Rikers Island, you'll see that pretty prevalent because... It's between the Bronx and the Queens. And you'll see people, so for instance, like people of color, they get displaced in their neighborhoods uh, due to the amount of gentrification coming in with these big uh, condos and wealthy individuals coming into the neighborhood. Uh, through that, though, they might lose their employments. Um, they constantly are policed by the NYPD for any action that they do. That's acts of broken window policing where the NYPD will police you when it comes to jumping turnstile because you probably lack money since you lost your job that day or whatever or that week. And ultimately, you end up in Rikers Island for a low-level, like, petty crime like that, which is, you know, weird because it's like a few miles away from Queens and in the Bronx. Um, so it's a cycle. You know, like, you see the cycle and you see how people are just constantly marginalized and oppressed in these like uh communities and uh, like like affluent individuals like moving into these neighborhoods you know they contribute to that cycle by calling the police or you have police lights in the NYCHA housing projects and these police lights are actually um they were first like installed by the NYPD but like now they're installed by private corporations that um are the same corporations that make um the lights for prisons, jails, and detention centers. So it just goes to show you that, you know, oppression have, happens everywhere. It doesn't happen inside the jail. It doesn't happen inside the detention center or the prison. It happens in your community. It happens everywhere you're in. So, yeah, uh, gentrification and the prison industrial complex are intertwined with each other because gentrification, it's in, in a way, it's an evolution of redlining. It's an evolution of segregation, you know. Gentrification is an evolution from redlining, uh, which is an, a, an evolution from segregation. It all preserves elements of the oppressive ideologies and systems that uh, dominate the U.S. Um, kind of going off like the interconnectedness 
of all of these systems and the role that they play in the prison industrial complex. I wanted to actually jump and ask you, is there anything that you feel NYU can and should do better as a university to dismantle ties and perpetuating mass incarceration? Um, obviously, the first thing is to end your ties with Airmark because I don't know if a lot, like a lot, probably like people know this already, but uh, NYU supply, so the supplier for food here at NYU is Airmark. Airmark is a corporation that uses prison labor to make uh, food for universities. Um, and NYU, you know, it's funny how they talk about diversity and inclusiveness, but yet they contribute to a system that is meant to oppress people of color. And it's just, <laughs> it's just like so crazy how this university operates. Um, but yeah, obviously ending your ties with Aramark, um, becoming a self-operating dining hall service, um, you know, like get away from like Aramark and actually like, you know, have food that's sustainable to us, have, you know, f work with like local food vendors and help them out. Uh, funding clubs that are committed to ending the prison industrial complex at NYU and beyond. And, re and we're like reevaluating our rights within NYU because once we come to NYU, we're like stripped of like rights as students. And when it comes to like interacting with like public safety, that's when things could get dangerous. There was like this one incident at Gallatin where, um, like some like some uh black uh black women were like stopped like seven by seven like uh public safety officers because she didn't have her ID but she had proof that she was gonna meet with her professor. I'm like, how how how, how like how desperate like is this school it, it, it is in terms of uh policing uh you know black bodies. Why is this issue of dismantling the current system so important? Uh, in your activism? Honestly, it really all begins with, like, seeing the Central Park Five documentary back in uh, freshman year of high school. And, like, I've always been involved with, like, organizing my own neighborhood. Like, my dad, he was an organizer back in DR, and, like, he even started, like, some bootleg communist, <laughs> um, like, organizing group in uh, Washington Heights. But, of course, that failed. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I've always been involved, like, organizing in some ways, whether that be through... Uh, working like with Latin American countries, like back in high school or like in middle school or whatever, um, and I just thought that like, cause like when when I saw the documentary, I was very like inspired by it, especially by the story of the five individuals, um, and I thought to myself, oh okay, so I'll just get involved in the system and change it. <laughs> so me, being the naive little high school kid that that I was, I got you know involved with, like certain like internships and like the DA's office and uh public defenders and you know I, I got involved like different like opportunities like in Columbia Law School but like I saw myself like you know what I like like this this like doesn't work like you know people of color getting in the system like representation is not going to bring liberation like representation is only becoming complicit to the white supremacy ideologies that we have so to me, like, I saw all that and, like, I learned a lot, but I didn't see, like, an actual way of, like, liberating from, like, all the suffering and, you know, pain that these systems have caused to individuals. It's yeah. a really interesting point you brought up about representation not equaling liberation. Are there any activist initiatives or projects that you're currently working on or involved with that you'd like to share? <laughs> So yeah, Radical Love Consciousness is a grassroots um, organization based on in Bushwick. 
Um, we focus on the idea of education, on being able to critically think about certain topics and liberating ourselves through uh, being aware and conscious of all the topics in our society, whether that be through anti-blackness, white supremacy, so on and so forth. We're creating free educational classes for working and poor uh, people of color in Bushwick and in different parts, uh, in different marginalized communities, so like Washington Heights, Harlem, South Bronx, uh, you name it. And we're inviting people to come in uh, to talk about these classes. We're having classes from mass incarceration, uh, from African uh, uh, dysphoria. You can like follow the Instagram page. It's Radical Love Consciousness. Cool, cool. So that concludes our first episode of Bad Radio. I hope you gain new knowledge from our conversation and you feel encouraged to put that knowledge to work in your own practice. Next week, I will have Professor Dean Serenilio. He will be joining me to talk about indigenous rights. So thank you so much for joining us for the first episode of Bad Radical Radio. I'm Natalie Dawkins.